0: Hello! Greetings! We're so glad that you're interested in spiritual things, and we're so glad that you joined us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, and we're uh, making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And we've been exploring the various things that we have seen that early Christians did when they came together. Now, in the New Testament, we see that Christians came together and assembled, and took part in various activities on the first day of the week. And those things included singing, praying, the Lord's Supper, hearing a lesson, giving and studying the Bible in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, chapter 20 and verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 14, 14 14-17, verse 26, chapter 16, 1-3, among other places. And that's why we do those very same things when we come together, as we follow uh, the model of what has been established for us in the past. And it's good for us to spend some time exploring these activities that we do, so we may do them in a way that glorifies and honors God, that we can do them according to His will, and in a profitable way. We're going to continue today by looking into the Lord's Supper. But before we begin, we again want to keep two truths in mind. A lot of times in a kind of modern English parlance, uh, the word worship gets used many times in association with what goes on in the assembly. Unfortunately, the way that that word ends up being used would make it seem that worship is restricted to a certain few things that are done, when really uh, much of the use of the word worship in the the Bible involves prostration, which is its own act, and the other use uh, involves spiritual service, uh, which we do in the assembly when we participate in the acts of the assembly, but it's also something that we do in the rest of our lives. And so we need to recognize that our lives are to be as a living and holy sacrifice to God, that in so doing we submit our soul before God, it prostrates before God according to His truth, and accomplishes what God intends in Romans 12, 1, and John 4, 20-24. That assembling with the saints and participating in these behavior, actions is certainly part of that. But it is no, in no way the only things that we do that represent worship. We can see in 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 12 the reason behind the things that we do in the assembly. We are to strive to excel in building up the church. In verse 26 that all things should be done for building up. And In Hebrews chapter 10 the Hebrew author adds his witness. Hebrews chapter 10 In verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we can see in these passages that we are to edify and encourage one another, to build one another up, and to strengthen one another. And everything that we do, including the Lord's Supper, must be understood in that light. And so let's see what the scriptures have to say about the memorial of the Lord's Supper. We do well to begin by considering the origin of the Lord's Supper. Uh, we can look in Matthew 26, 26-29, Mark 14, 22-25. but Let's go together to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise a cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is on the table. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So this is the last supper, the night of Passover. It's Jesus' uh, time to observe the Passover. And he institutes the Lord's Supper. He distributes bread. He says represents his body, and he fare to the vine, which represents his blood, the new covenant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26, Paul describes exactly what he received about the Lord's supper and that what he had transmitted. So what Paul says here is that the, the, the Supper of Jesus was not merely something that happened once. And we kind of look back on that as a great event and move on. No, the expectation is it's something that uh, it is continually done. That when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he, he meant it. So that we are to continue to partake of this. And we know this is an assembly context because in verse 20, uh, when Paul is castigating the Corinthians for how they have been partaking of the Lord's Supper, and it involves when they come together uh, as a church and it's not going well because of the divisions that are being manifest before them. Another passage in Acts chapter 20, and in verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Luke says the brethren came together to break bread. Break bread is metonymy for some kind of meal. Uh, They don't just take bread, break it into pieces, and then that's it. And We deuce from the available information that it refers here to the the Lord's Supper. That's the reason for their gathering. It's the continual observance because we can see that this particular first day of the week did not have any special significance. There's no marker. We have basically an interesting time marker because we know it's around the time of between the Passover and and the, and and Pentecost, because we know in verse sixteen that Paul will be later hastening to get to Jerusalem by the Pentecost, and, and so it's sometime between those two events. So there's no inherent significance on this particular first day of the week. But it's very interesting to note that Paul stayed seven days in Troas when he's hastening to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And it makes sense to stay for seven days if he arrived at Troas just before the weekly gathering of the saints. And he waited, therefore, until the day in which they came together. And so we can see from this example and the circumstances around it that Christians did assemble to partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. And they were not in the habit of assembling on other days of the week for this purpose. We haven't seen any examples of that beyond the breaking bread from House day to day where that was different. That was a common meal back in Acts chapter 2 in a very different circumstance. So we can see here that this was a very special meeting, that Paul made it a priority and even in the story Luke just tells us that to provide context. Later on, the real part of the story is because of Eutychus, who falls and, and is raised up, that's the main reason why Luke is telling us this. But in telling us the context so we understand what's going on in the story, he really tells us a lot about early Christian practice. And it's not just this. We can see in the Didache, a mid-to-late first-century document of early Christians, and and in the witness of Justin Martyr and others, that Christians were of the habit of coming together on the first day of the week, and were taking the Lord's Supper uh, on that occasion on the first day of the week. So what is the Lord's Supper? What is it all about? Well, it's a ceremonial meal. It is not what is allegedly a full agape, or love feast. We see in First Corinthians eleven and also in the story in Luke that it is something that Jesus established after supper. So they'd already eaten the Passover Supper. And and so the idea is that the Lord's Supper is not a meal designed to truly fill up the body. It's not a true common meal. And we certainly recognize in Acts two four six and Acts twenty and verse eleven that Christians did share meals together. Uh, but the supper, the Lord's Supper is a very separate ceremonial meal. Because Jesus took bread. Now this bread that Jesus took would have been most certainly unleavened. In Luke 22, and verse 7, it's during the Passover. and It's the days of unleavened bread that Israel was to get all leaven out of its house. And so there would be no leaven, so it would not uh, have any yeast in it. And this is from Exodus 12, and verse 15. So it's unleavened bread that Jesus is taking. He also takes a cup. The cup is the one that is poured out to represent the new covenant in Jesus' blood. In this reference, the cup seems to remind us of himself because he was the vessel in which the blood was that was poured out for for our forgiveness. And, of course, the blood that is shed represents his life. That is what was offered to provide us atonement uh, based on the logic of sacrifice, Leviticus 17.11, the rest of Leviticus, and made explicit by the Hebrew author in Hebrews 9.15-27. through 27. But really, the cup, a lot of people get obsessed about the cup itself. That, that's not Jesus' main concern. The Holy Grail is not the issue. It's the fact that it contains the fruit of the vine. The fruit of the vine is 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 what is really uh, what Jesus is after. And by talking about the cup, he's usually talking about the contents of the cup. So would contend that it's fermented, that it would be wine, that... Uh, um, but nevertheless, in Exodus, yeast was to be removed. And there is yeast. That's what makes alcohol. That is, is, that's what ferments grape juice. And it is possible for the Israelites who boiled it so that it would not have become wine. And so it could have been, and probably most likely was, unfermented grape juice. And those, then, are the emblems of the Lord's Supper. Unleavened bread, unleavened fruit of the vine, so sort of grape juice... And they are to represent the body and blood of the Lord. Now, some would suggest that they somehow mystically become the body and blood of the Lord, either in a completely real sense, in in transubstantiation in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy to an extent, or, or in consubstantiation, where the identification is still very strong. But Jesus is standing there giving these things when his body is fully in front of them. And so, just like baptism is a burial, in which the the sign has a lot of concrete reference, uh, exemplifying the message in, in a very embodied way. The same is true of the, the fruit of the vine, the, the bread and the fruit of the vine. We can see the body and the fruit of the, the blood, and excuse me, the bread. We can see the blood and the fruit of the vine. We see those in concepts embodied in those. Uh, particular elements, but in no way do they actually become body and blood, just like one does not become physically dead in baptism. These things are very supercharged ritual events. A lot of people like the word ritual, but here it's very important that we recognize it's a ritual meal with ritual implications and ritual significance. We don't see any indication in New Testament authors that that there was any literalism going on here. And of course in Acts 15.29, Christians are to abstain from blood. And if the Lord's uh, blood is what we're drinking on the first day of the week, then that would be a, a contradiction of that commandment. But we are to recognize that we are to see the body in the bread. We are to see the blood in the fruit of the vine and that we are to rep- recognize that we are, in a spiritual way, partaking of the body and blood of Jesus, that we that we are participating in that, and we are memorializing it. And that's really what the Lord's Supper is all about. Why do we partake of it? Well, it's to memorialize and remember the Lord's death. It's the primary reason given in First Corinthians 11, 25, and 26. It's a time that we reflect upon the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, that the bread is to make us think of that body hung on the cross for our sins Without, not because of anything he did the the red grape juice directs our minds to that blood shed uh, poured out in the scourging and on the cross for our sin there's no statue uh, that God intended for this there's no altar that was built there was no other commemoration of his death in the scriptures but this and yet it's a more lasting monument than anything built of stone could ever be, because Christians are still sharing two thousand years later the bread and the fruit of the vine. And in a very real way it is a ability of us to participate in this in the story of God. That we that just as the Passover constantly reminded Israel that they were sojourners, that that their Ancestors had come out of bondage in Egypt, and how God had delivered them from bondage. That's the Lord's Supper is for us weekly—a reminder of of what God has done to pay for our redemption, that we have been redeemed from the curse of sin and death, and that we are constantly put in active, conscious memory what Jesus has done for us. A lot of people think that that's where it ends—that it ends with His death. But it's not a funeral. Jesus' greatness is not that he died. It's that he died and God raised him on the third day. If Christ was not raised in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17, we are still in our sins. The early Christians did not come together on a Thursday evening to partake of the Lord's Supper the night that he instituted it. Christians did not come together on Friday afternoon when Jesus died to partake of it. Instead, They come together on the first day of the week. They call it, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, the Lord's day. Why is it the Lord's day? Because it is a day on which the Lord was raised, risen from the dead. So when we proclaim the Lord's death, it is not without reference to the resurrection. Because for him to be the Lord, he had to be raised, he had to ascend, he had to receive the kingdom from the Father. And so the resurrection is very much undergirding our understanding of the Lord's Supper, because that is how we have received deliverance from death and the hope and confidence for our own resurrection. And it's something that we remember in what the Lord has done for us. Likewise, there is more going on in the Lord's Supper than simply the individual believer and the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Participation here is a Greek word, koinonia, something you hold in common. We translate it in fellowship or association. And so we can see that we, as Christians, can be rightly called the people of the bread and the people of the fruit of the vine. Because we are partaking of the same bread and of the same fruit of the vine. It is a communion. We are communing, we are sharing in common the body and blood of Jesus represented in the bread and the fruit of the vine. It's not a simultaneous eating, it does not demand only one loaf and cup. It is an indicator that when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are going through another very concrete manifestation of our unity in God in Christ, that we share in his body and his blood. We do that in the, the figure of the bread and the fruit of the vine, and that helps us recognize that we are doing that as the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12, Romans 12, we're all members of the body of Christ, so we all are partaking in Jesus. John 6, we partake of him and we are dedicated to his word, we know his word, we speak his word, we live his word, he, we, we feel his word. In all these ways, we demonstrate our communion with God in Christ, but also with one another. And that interesting use of the first person plural, we. He's right of the Corinthians, Paul is, but he's in Ephesus, most likely. So, how can he use the first person if he's not actually with them? Well, what it means is that while we are most certainly to respect the fact that we are to take the Lord's Supper together. That there's a realization that geography separates many of the people of God, but that we have the comfort and the encouragement to recognize that on any given first day of the week around the world, saints are partaking of the one bread and the one and the fruit of the vine, and the one cup, and that we are all sharing in the one bread and the one cup on that level the spiritual communion that we have as a church, universal. The Lord's Supper, therefore, is a communal action. It does indicate our universal association, but again, Christians came together to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's an individual action done collectively. There's that discernment that Paul will talk about in 1 Corinthians 11, 26 through thirty. 27 excuse me through 32 that and whoever eats the Bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. A lot of people have taken this to be some kind of self-mortification before the Lord's Supper that we have to assess our worthiness to partake of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus and if we feel like we've got some sin that's really holding us back that we shouldn't partake. But that's not contextual and it, it it's very distressing in many ways because if it, if it, when it comes to worthiness the gospel is very clear that we are all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God that when it comes to worthiness, none of us are worthy to come and sit at the table. That's not what Paul's talking about here. The discernment that's going on is the willingness to discern that you are sharing in a joint participation, that you're discerning the unity of the body, and that if the way that you're eating and drinking is not manifesting unity, but is, and one is, is, is filled and another is empty, one is drunk and another has nothing, that you're setting at naught what Christ has done to bring everybody together. That if you're hungry, you eat at home so that the meal you share together in the ritual meal of the Lord's Supper can exemplify unity, not divisions. On the other hand, that's still an individual judgment. You've got to individually discern the body. And what happens if there are some in an assembly who do not discern the body and others who do? Are the ones who do have a condemned eating because of those who do not? That is not what is recognized here. So there are individual elements. We have to... Uh, ourselves uh, purpose to come together to partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine we must see the body we must uh, recognize the communion we have with one another in Christ Um, but nevertheless there is the individual element and there is also the collective element and it demands a collective setting of the assembly if it's not in a collective assembly it's not a joint participation in Christ's body and blood but a single one and uh, th- there's a reason why there's no scriptural indication that the Lord's Supper was taken outside of the context of the assembly and and and, and partake in otherwise and it's very interesting that we have examples of was everything else with examples of singing and praying and teaching and preaching outside of the assembly don't have examples of the Lord's Supper outside the assembly. We should think about that. Another thing that we are doing is we are um, considering the return of Christ. That you know, the until He comes there in First Corinthians eleven twenty-six. That we're to remember His return. In a lot of ways, uh, what's going on is He's providing that boundary marker. We're going to partake until He comes. Yeah, you know, that's the time marker. We're not going to need to partake of the Lord's Supper when we are in the resurrection and his presence forever. But the fact that we are here and partaking is an indicator and a reminder that he has not yet come. It is a reminder that we are to still pray Maranatha, that our Lord may come, that we're awaiting that glorious day. And that's why we partake of the Lord's Supper. So we've seen the nature of the Lord's Supper today, that Jesus instituted it just before he died, and the church perpetuates on the first day of the week every week. That he distributed unleavened bread and fruit of the vine to represent his body and blood, that we may give consideration to memorialize what he had done on the cross. But we do so in light of the resurrection, the first day of the week, and we do so together, sharing in communion to represent the body of Christ, the joint sharing in the body of Christ, uh, where the fruit and the, the body, the bread and the fruit of the vine, and sharing that together is to indicate how we are sharing in life together, that we are sharing. In the work of God together, and that we are truly representing the body of Christ. So let us partake of the Lord's Supper in the first day of the week. And give thanks to God for all that he has done for us to remember the Lord's death and proclaiming it to share together in the Feast of our Lord. Thank you that you've spent this time with us. We hope that you've been encouraged and benefited by what we've talked about. If you have any questions about anything we've discussed, maybe you have some comments or maybe just need a talk a prayer requests while learning how to be a Christian, any way we can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me at my website, deverbalvti.com. That's www.DeVerboVitae.com. Maybe you'd like to know more about the Venice Church of Christ or check us out. You can find out more about us online at Venice or also on various forms of social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.